Welcome to Everyone Loved It But Me. My name is Lisa Hedger and I am your host. I'm a freelance writer, journalist, and editor in Central Ohio. And this is the podcast where we analyze super popular literature. And today's discussion, today is a big one. It is Spare by Prince Harry. And what we often do is a lot of times I'll have a guest on the show and we talk about the book because this book just came out. It's so new. A lot of times when we have really new books, I want to come on kind of right away and and give you some of my thoughts. So that's what I'm doing with this book. And this is going to be part one. This is a big book. So I am going to talk really about kind of the first first half of the book right until about the the military service. So I don't even get into the Megan part of the book uh, today. So stay tuned for part two for that. So but I have a lot of really interesting thoughts on this. I'm very um, there's just this is this is an interesting book you guys. Now on to the show. I'm super excited to be talking about this book. As you know, it has gotten so much attention and there is no question this is the perfect, you know, everyone loved it but me book to analyze. And I'm going to do kind of the first first half of the book here. I feel like I should tell you where I stand with the royals. I... I'm always kind of fascinated by them. I find them really interesting. I don't necessarily think I, oh my gosh, I'm, I really like Kate and William, but I hate Harry, or I really like Harry and Meghan and hate Kate and William. I I don't feel like I am on one side or one team or anything like that. I, I just find them all kind of fascinating. I mean, gosh, you know. Who among, of, who among us hasn't wondered what it would be like to be a princess or live in a castle? You know, it's it's fascinating. So that's that's kind of where I stand. That Yes, I think it's fascinating. So when I'm looking at this with Harry, right? So there's times that I feel so sorry for him as a reader, for everything he's been through, this tremendous, horrific trauma, losing your mom, Oh my gosh, so suddenly and so horrifically. Obviously, you know, he he was raised in a family, lots of narcissists, no question about it. They did not help him to grieve. They did not know how to how to even, you know, help him cope at all. The death of his mother has completely shaken him. Is something that, you know, it's very difficult for him to fully recover from, right? So there's that part of it. And then, but at the same time, you know, I think two things can be true. That he is a person who's experienced so much trauma, but he's also a person who's super, super privileged and has millions of dollars. And I think that there are moments, even Harry in his late 30s, has this level of privilege that I think he hasn't fully reconciled, right? Doesn't fully understand. I'll give a lot of examples. But first I'll tell you know, here's how the book starts. It starts when his grandfather, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, has died. So this is right when, you know, he and Megan are making this separation from the family. He's waiting to meet his brother William and dad. 
and they're meeting in a cemetery and and you'll see that the writing style is very conversational. He starts out being British, being Windsors. We begin chatting casually about the weather. We compared notes about Grandpa's funeral. He planned it all himself, down to the tiniest detail. We reminded ourselves with rueful smiles. Small talk, the smallest. We touched on all secondary subjects, and I kept waiting for us to get to the primary one, wondering why it was taking so long. And also, how on earth my father and brother could appear so calm? So that is very much kind of the, the writing style. I feel like, you know, we know he, of course, he's a ghostwriter here. And the writing style is very conversational. I got a kick out of the fact that he did go with everyone's nicknames, right? So he just wrote it, you know, like if I'm writing about my family, I wouldn't call my mom mother, I call her mom, so I would I would go with that. I would use nicknames. That's exactly what he did. So I like that. So William, he calls his brother Willie. Pa, Camilla is just Camilla, you guys, and Kate is also Kate. He calls Queen Elizabeth Granny, but Prince Philip is grandpa. Princess Diana, of course, is mummy. And I found myself, I, I will say that the one person that I probably in the royal family have had maybe like a bias against that I don't like as much is Prince Charles, now King Charles. I just haven't been a huge fan of him. But I will say this book has made me a little more endearing to him because, you know, we know he's socially awkward. We know he has all of the, these different issues and, of course, was raised with extreme amount of privilege, too. But every time he refers to Harry, it's always darling boy, darling boy. And like I said, he always calls his dad Pa. And that to me is, I just found it really endearing. And, and there were a couple moments in here where Harry's having struggles, Harry is struggling and, and having a rough time. And, you know, Charles is right there saying darling boy. And Boy, I was I was surprised by that. That I uh, this has not gained much attention. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks that. But but I had a slight a more positive light, at least so far, where I'm kind of at the halfway point of Charles than I ever thought he would. And this has gotten a little attention. But William calls Harry Harold, which I find so unique, right? Because. His formal name is Henry Charles Albert David, not Harold, but that is what, what Willie calls Harry. And when we do these, everyone loved to put me books. I always like to throw out some statistics, and this one I think is really pretty cut and dry. I don't think anyone's going to question that <laughs> Spare is super popular. In its first week worldwide... Spare has sold more than 3.2 million copies in one week. And there's predictions it's already going to rank among the best-selling memoirs of all time. So that that is, that is where we are with, with Spare. In terms of, you know, there, there's been all this debate like how much tea is is he giving how much is he really giving and talking about this or that I, I would say I mean to me there's just no question that the biggest villain is the British media I mean it's fair to say that the British media gets blamed for you know almost every 
bad thing that happens in his life. Of course, his mother's death, which is fair. Also, you know, when he breaks up with Chelsea and breaks up with someone else, you know, it's it's the media's fault. Like, every step along the way. Now, I would argue I'm not so sure some of those, you know, romantic breakups are all the media's fault. Maybe those were relationships that that were, you know, we always say, you know, there's a friendships, relationships are for a reason, season, and a lifetime. Maybe those were not lifetime relationships, but he blames the, the media. And so that that is just something that is a constant, constant theme, is that he blames the media. I think something else that... And, and maybe this was, again, portrayed by the media. That's what he says. The media always basically made it seem like William and Harry, you know, they created this illusion that they were super close and best of friends. And Harry kind of writes like that's not necessarily the case. They were, you know, separated went to separate schools and even when they did go to the same school William was like hey don't even talk to me that sounds you know mean but again those of us who know families know that a lot of the things that he's talking about an older brother not wanting to acknowledge a younger brother's existence that happens a lot (laughs) you know that that happens a lot now obviously in this case I'm sure Harry was not happy because you know his mom had died and And, you know, he wanted, he looked up to his older brother. That is definitely something, a lot of the things that he writes about that those of us who are used to complicated families say, okay, that it's not just you. Like, we understand that. Now, one thing I want to bring up is this book has, I know, gotten a lot of criticism because, you know, people are saying, wait a minute, he described uh, this person wearing this outfit or, you know, Things were not accurate. And he does address that. So so there's a lot of criticism about memory, that he gets a few details wrong. But he does address that. So right up front on page 13, he talks about problems with his memory. And he says he retains physical settings. He remembers dense woods, the deer nibbled hill. But he says dates and dialogue he doesn't remember. So dates. Sorry, I'll need to look them up. Dialogue. I'll do my best, but make no verbatim claims, especially when it comes to the 90s. But ask me about any space I've occupied. Castle, cockpit, classroom, stateroom, bedroom, palace, garden, pub, and I'll recreate it down to the carpet tax. Why should my memory organize experience like this? Is it genetics? Trauma? Some Frankenstein-esque combination of the two? Whatever the cause, my memory is my memory. It does what it does. Gather and curates as it sees fit. And there's just too much truth in what I remember and how I remember it as there is in so-called objective facts. I actually do think when we just look at this, right, as, as the writing... I think his the descriptions at physical places, I mean, he's right. The way he describes Balmoral, you know, that's a castle the Windsor spend the summer in where, where the queen would go. When he describes Africa, those scenes are really well done, those descriptions. And, of course, when he's describing the conversations or people, it's it's a little bit different. But I, I like that he acknowledges that up front because I'm sure he knew everyone was going to, you know, try to 
attack every particular quote and things like that. And, you know, when he's describing how Prince Charles tells him that his mother had died, it sounds like he and William were not in the same space. Of course, Prince Charles says, you know, darling boy, mommy's been in a car crash. I remember thinking, crash? Okay, but she'll be all right, yes? And then it goes on to say, I thought again, injured, but she's okay. She's been taken to hospital. They'll fix her head and we'll go see her today, tonight at the latest. They tried, darling boy. I'm afraid she didn't make it. These phrases remain in my mind like darts in a board. He did say it that way. I know that much for sure. She didn't make it. And then everything seemed to stop. What I do remember with startling clarity is that I didn't cry. Not one tear. Pa didn't hug me. He wasn't great at showing emotions under normal circumstances. How could he be expected to show them in such a crisis? But his hand did fall once more on my knee and he said, it's going to be okay. This was quite a lot for him. Fatherly, hopeful, kind, and so very untrue. Yeah, that that kind of writing I, I just thought was really lovely. And essentially then we see him you know he's he now he's lost his mom he struggles to be to know how to react to his family right because you know the queen his granny was getting a lot of criticism about decisions she was making after his mother died but i think it's easier for him at this point to take the blame again on the british press you know they they killed his they're the ones to be blamed for killing his mom and anything that they did any decision you know his family chose to have he and william you know follow his his mother's casket but he doesn't really take his anger out on his family he really takes it out on the the press and what happens after you know, this horrible event, the family didn't really talk about it. There's no type of therapy or anything like that. So all of this is troubling because, you know, how, how are you, how, how was he supposed to cope with this? He decides that she staged this disappearance. He calls it a disappearance. He calls it a disappearance, you guys, for most of the book. He goes on to say, with nothing to do but roam the castle and talk to myself, a suspicion took hold, which then became a firm belief. This was all a trick. And for once, the trick wasn't being played by the people around me or the press, but by mummy. Her life's been miserable. She's been hounded, harassed, lied about, and lied to. So she staged an accident as a diversion and run away. The realization took my breath away, made me gasp with relief. Of course, it's all a ruse, so she can make a clean start. At this very moment, she's undoubtedly renting an apartment in Paris, arranging fresh flowers in her secretly purchased log cabin somewhere way up high in the Swiss Alps. Soon, soon, she'll send for me and Willie. It's all so obvious. Why didn't I see it before? Mummy isn't dead. She's hiding. I felt so much better. Then doubt creeped in. Hang on. Mummy would never do this. This unspeakable pain, she'd never allow that, let alone cause it. Then back to relief. She had no choice. It was her only hope of freedom. Then doubt again. Mummy wouldn't hide. She's too much of a fighter. Then relief. This is her way of fighting. She'll be back. This 
part that he writes about the the way that he was in denial of his mom's death and this horrible grief that he went through i think is is really one of the best parts of the book because i think everybody can relate to this not necessarily the same way but we've all handled grief and this is something where i really do believe that the book excels because he writes about this grief he writes about this tremendous tremendous sadness in poignant honest way then we start to get to some parts where where i had some challenges okay i would definitely expect and i think he's pretty candid about you know his middle school and high school you know hijinks and and just some of the stupid things you do. One of my problems, though, he has a, there's a couple of different parts where he essentially is making fun of staffers. And I kind of thought that Harry, as someone who's almost 40, would kind of would would look at this a little differently. Would say, like, okay, sure, I was, you know, a teen and I did stupid things. But I realize now, looking back, that, you know, those those people were not in the same power situation as me. They were wor- working really, really hard to keep their jobs. And I was a little bit of a, a total stinker. I had a hard time. I was kind of disappointed. I felt like he hasn't fully maybe reconciled that part of it. I mean, he, he goes through this whole thing about a woman who worked at his school And he would talk about how he was taunting her and he was mocking her as she came down the stairs. The reward was worth the risk. In the end, he does say that he was doing this to make his mates laugh. For me, the reward wasn't tormenting poor Pat, but making my mates laugh. It felt so good to make others laugh, especially when I hadn't laughed. I understand that. Making fun of somebody, you're tormenting her to get a laugh. But I I guess I would have liked a little more kind of realizing, wait a minute, I I was like the prince. And what could she really do is I was making fun of her. We have another similar situation when he's in Africa and he's putting just lathering a staffer's food with Tabasco sauce and other people. That it's funny. We get it. But I, I'm just surprised that, again, Harry looking back now being almost 40 didn't quite say like wow that was a tough situation for that staffer because there wasn't much they could do about that you know they were probably at risk of losing their job if they complained or anything there's a couple of things that those are definitely a couple incidences that i would have liked to see him kind of analyze that a little differently perhaps and you know it, it seems like he's he's not he's not quite there and then, and then we start getting into these you know the youthful indiscretions the youthful mistakes where he's obviously he's he's doing marijuana and drugs and things like that to deal with his pain and then there is the the nazi situation the nazi incident where he wears a sand colored nazi uniform that's mentioned on page 103 I felt like when I've heard him talk about this, he took more responsibility in the book. I didn't feel like he took on quite as much responsibility. 
because he talks about how, you know, Willie and Kate howled laughing. I did like that he described that this party, the whole point of this party was a costume party, right? Because I remember at the time I was like, why is he just wearing this? I didn't understand that everybody was dressing up and wearing ridiculous outfits. And again, I have to say, I was surprised that in this part, when he spoke with Charles, again, I thought Charles handled that incident really well. So this is right after, you know, there was someone at the party who took a picture of Harry wearing this Nazi uniform. And he writes, then I phoned Pa. To my surprise, he was serene. At first, I was suspicious. I thought maybe he was seeing my crisis as another opportunity to bolster his PR. But he spoke to me with such tenderness, such genuine compassion that I was disarmed and grateful. He didn't gloss over the facts. Darling boy, how could you be so foolish? But he quickly went on to say that it was the foolishness of youth that he remembered being publicly vilified for youthful sins. And it wasn't fair because youth is a time when you're by definition unfinished. You're still growing, still becoming, still learning, he said. And again, I was surprised that I I liked Charles' reaction to that, you know, and, and that becomes, if you'll notice in the line, he had said, I thought he, I thought maybe he was seeing my crisis as another opportunity to bolster his PR. So there is mention, Harry believes, you know, that his dad has used some of his personal issues, for instance, like when the press realized he was taking drugs, he feels like his dad's team basically said, okay, we're going to, to let the press run this story because it will make Charles look better because then they'll write it like, oh, poor Charles, single dad, you know, raising a kid who's doing drugs, you know, he's doing his best, right? So so that is, again, back to that that media conflict that Harry has when he he blames the press on everything. But as the book is going on and I'm, you know, like I said, I'm just close to midway through. He starts to get very upset when he feels like family members are allowing and planting certain stories. Our number two villain is, is of course, Camilla because he feels like she needs to revamp her reputation. So she is is planting certain things. Like, for instance, he would say, you know, look, there was just a meeting that it was just me Willie and Camilla, but somehow the press learned about it. So how could that have happened? That that is that is an ongoing theme. So right where I'm at and, and I'm kind of right at the part where where he's talking where he's gone to Afghanistan, that's kind of where I'm going to to end it. I did think it was interesting. I mentioned this he also right at the part where kind of he and Chelsea had chosen to break up and then he dated somebody else and like I said in both cases he blamed the media. But again, I'm surprised Harry, you know, looking at this maybe 10 years later, and maybe he just chose not to write that part. Maybe it's easier to blame the media. I'm surprised that that he hasn't recognized perhaps that there were other aspects of those relationships that maybe made them not forever relationships. And they were just relationships that, that were there for for a season or reason, as they say. I, I'm definitely enjoying the book. 
like I said, I'm only in the first part. I know there's some other parts I'm going to get into in the next couple of days that I keep hearing people talk about, you know, which we're going, I'm going to delve into on phase two. I'm thinking this might be my more favorite part of the book because I feel like his grief, he really delves into that in this first part. He talks about going through the tunnel in Paris. He had a driver take him there at 65 miles an, an hour, and he thought it was going to be scary and horrific, and it wasn't. I feel like this part of the book where he's talking about his grief, and it is so real and so painful, and I have to say, I I I really appreciate that. Really appreciate the way that he wrote that. Again, like I said, some of the youthful indiscretions that I feel like he doesn't quite reconcile his power as he was making fun of the these staffers. Those couple incidences that that's you know certainly troubling. I think to to read it that way. But this is where I am on the first half of the book. Stay tuned next week for part two of Spare. And as always, I want to thank you so much for listening to the show. I really appreciate, I really appreciate you listening. If you have any books that you'd like to see me discuss on the show, as we say, any of those Everyone Loved It But Me books, please reach out to me. You can reach out to me at www.everyoneloveditbutme.com. And I, again, thanks so much for listening. I hope you have a lovely day. Most importantly, I hope you get time to read today. 